Hi everyone, um, coming to you today, um, I generally just record these off the cuff, like I don't edit them, I don't re-record and I think I got like three minutes in just then and went, nah, I'm going to do that again. Uh, so anyway, here's take two. Um, I... I guess you might hear my voice. I probably sound a little bit flat today. Um, not my usually bubbly self, cracking jokes and talking in Kath and Kim voices and just being silly because um, I love making people laugh. Um, but I've just had a really tough day. Um, just, again, not wanting to go into too much detail but um, because obviously I want to protect people's privacy and confidentiality. Um, but I had just some really complex, um, issues come up with some of my young people that I work with. Um, and yeah, just some really heavy stuff in regards to their life circumstances. And I am feeling a mixture of things. I am really quite frustrated, um, and angry. Um, and at the same time underneath that, I am really disappointed um, for my young person and really sad, um, for them. And yeah, just wish I could do more. Um, I've never gotten teary on this podcast before, but, um, I am human. (laughs) Um, it does happen. And I think it really reflects what a difficult job that we have. Um, it's not easy. Um, it's, really hard some days and you can't predict when those days are going to happen. You can't predict people being in crisis. Um, just like you can't predict when you yourself are in crisis. Um, and that's really tough. Um, cause it kind of hits you like a ton of bricks. You just don't expect it. And yeah, I think along with all the feelings I mentioned, there's just this real sense of powerlessness that you just, you just can't do enough in that moment. Um, and that just sucks. It really sucks. So that's how I'm feeling today. I really wanted to capture that in my podcast because I just think it's, it's just being real, you know, and it's really highlighting something that a lovely lady mentioned to me in a phone call last night. To put into context, um, I replied to someone's comment on a early career psych forum um, and basically suggested um, that they listen to my podcast um, because I've created it um, for many reasons, but one of those being to validate and normalize the absolute roller coaster it is. Um, studying psychology and then practicing in psychology. Um, and I guess coming home today and feeling the way that I'm feeling, I was like, I need to get on the pod and record this because I don't think many psychs out there talk about this enough. I think we certainly all feel it, um, and in different degrees and in different ways, but we probably 
don't discuss it enough. I think we probably discuss it with our close friends and colleagues maybe. Um, but one of the things this lovely lady last night brought up on the phone to me was um, just the isolation of, of our role um, and how much like other people that aren't psychologists have, they just have trouble understanding. And of course they would, because unless they do what we do, um, it's going to be pretty hard to understand it. So I guess what that comes with though, is this, yeah, lack of understanding when, you know, you come home and you've had a day like I've had today, um, and your family and your friends, they just don't get it. And, and they can't possibly get it. And this isn't to place blame on anyone or to say, oh, they should just be more understanding and more validating. I guess it's just to highlight how unique this role is, um, how isolating it is, and particularly how unique and isolating it is when you first start and you're like, what the heck am I doing? And this is not what I expected and I'm not coping and everything's too hard and I don't know what I'm doing and all of that. Um, and I think when you, you know, you finish uni and you go into work, depending on the job, if it is private practice, it can actually ironically be extremely isolating. And I say ironically because a lot of people will come out of masters, say, and go into a private practice with other psychologists. So they they might not go solely out on their own yet. So they're working, yeah, alongside other practitioners. But if you're with clients all day, every day, back to back, you're probably not going to really see anyone. Like there's kind of like this ships in the night phenomena happening where you know, you might have a break or a gap, but then you open your door to go and talk to a colleague, but then their door's closed and they're in with a client and then vice versa. Like they come out wanting to chat to you, you're in with a client. And it's really tricky to actually find the time to have those conversations. And when you first start out, like you're going to have so many questions about what to do with, you know, any case, depending on what it is, depending on the presenting problem. But when we're at uni, we learn from a textbook, we learn from the DSM and it's like, this is the diagnosis and these are the criteria. And it all looks very clear and, and textbook, pardon the pun and black and white. And really like, this is what it's going to look like. And that's just not the reality the reality is most people present with comorbidities. Um, it's unless it's early intervention and you get people early where you might see, you know, it's just mild anxiety and let's unpack that, work through that. And your traditional kind of six to 10 session model could work for that. Um, but look, the reality is a lot of the, the presentations that we're getting in private practice or any practice for that matter, any organization in psychology, they're much more complex and they don't fit neatly into a box and they have multiple disorders um, and they have complex trauma histories and they've never had a diagnosis and they're 16, 17, 18 years old and you're like, how did this person slip through the cracks? And I can guarantee there's people that are a lot older than that up until 
you know, whatever age, even into the 80s, 90s, hundreds, however long people can live for these days, that have never actually had a diagnosis, but they really could have benefited from one. Um, Not because of, you know, stigma of diagnosis, but for the support they could have got for having that label there. Um, And I just think that's really unfortunate. Um, And that's a big part of why I do the job that I do, um, particularly in youth justice, because I know that these kids, they need someone like me to advocate for them to step in and go, hey, I think they've actually got FASD or autism or an intellectual disability or all of the above. We need to get them on the NDIS. We need to get these supports in place before they finish up with us so that they've got a better life trajectory. And I guess I saw the complete kind of opposite to that today. And that just, yeah, it shook me. Um, And I've seen it a few times now. I've only been in the organization for just over 18 months. Um, But unfortunately, because of that lack of early intervention, these kids get to their mid teens and everything goes to crap, you know? Um, and the parents haven't had the support that they needed and they and they, they didn't get the education on what actually might be going wrong with their kid. And so they just get these crazy intense, sometimes violent, sometimes destructive behaviors that they don't know what to do with. And, they very commonly and normally react like any human would and, and, you know, try and put consequences and punishments in place. Unfortunately though, for these kids that doesn't work. And generally us humans, when something's not working, we like amp it up to the next level and we become more intense and more punitive and, you know, and unfortunately that makes the problem even worse. Um, and so, yeah, look, Anyway, I am such a huge advocate for getting in as early as possible. Um, And if as early as possible is 16 to 17, 18, let's get it done because we could literally change this kid's pathway. Um, And I think it's just about acknowledging it. It's not going to be an overnight fix if there is, you know, 16 years of trauma We've got to unpack that. We've got to build that relationship, that trust. We've got to get to know the young person. We've got to unpack the behaviors. What's actually going on? They're not just being a little SHIT. They're not just, you know, it's not just a lack of respect. It's it's so much more than that. Like that's just the tip of the iceberg. So, yeah, I guess coming full circle in that, um, our clients aren't textbook. Our clients are human they are complex they are individual they are unique they are special it is an absolute privilege being able to help people in the way that I do um and it's also really hard (laughs) it's not an easy job oh man like I wouldn't I wouldn't um I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world um but it's hard it's really hard some days and today's one of those days. So I hope that there's someone out there listening to this that can relate to that. I hope there's multiple people that can relate to that. 
Um, I don't think I'm alone in this experience. Well, I know I'm not alone in this experience, actually. Um, and I think, too, just coming back to some of the things that um, me and this lady mentioned in our phone call last night, um, a lot of us psychs come into this profession with these really high, like, unrelenting standards and it might have come from our parents either they've like told us explicitly, you know, we need to be perfect. We need to achieve to be worthwhile as a human, or they've just demonstrated that themselves. And then you've like internalized it. So, um, without wanting to talk out of school, my parents are the second. So probably more my dad, but, um, I would say they've never pressured me or had unrelenting standards on me per se, but they've definitely had them on themselves and I've seen that and that's been modeled to me and I've internalized some of that. And look, a lot of that's now up to me with what I do with that. But I think it's a really important acknowledgement that either our parents can tell us what to do or they can show us what to do and then we have a choice in where we go with that behavior um and i think when it's the first one where the parent is you know has those unrelenting standards towards the child um it's so much more difficult to untangle it from yourself like it's i feel probably much more entrenched and internalized um and i think a lot of psychologists go into the degree having that in the back of their mind whether it's you know like i said the first or the second put on them or just modeled um we are perfectionists we are type a personality we're like really driven and we just want to do a really good job and that's not always possible. And I think particularly in this profession, it's not always possible um, because you've got a whole other side of the coin. You've got the client. Um, so you can't like, it's not our responsibility to fix them or change them. It's our responsibility to build a relationship, to meet them halfway, to validate, to normalize, to sit with, to, you know, help them see what needs to change, not just giving them the answers. Um, and that's not always possible um, for lots of different reasons. And what came up last night in our conversation was this, you know, the stages of change model. Um, just to familiarise you with that. Um, see, I'm, I'm relaxing now. I'm expressing. I'm getting things off my chest. I'm feeling... Whew, I'm feeling good. This is like... <laughs> Oddly, very therapeutic doing a podcast, FYI. So stages of change model. I've just Googled it just so I can have it clear in my mind up in front of me. Um, if you aren't familiar with it, please Google it. Um, there's lots of groovy graphics. But essentially it talks about people being in a certain stage of change um, whenever it comes to an issue. So you've got pre-contemplation, which is there's no intention of changing the behavior. They haven't even thought about it. They're not really even aware of it. Um, there's contemplation, which is they're aware they have, you know, a problem, but they don't want to 
do anything about it. We've got then preparation, which is they're making a bit of a plan. They're getting things in order. They're prepared to start something, just they haven't started it yet. Then you've got action, and that's where you actually do active modification of, of the behavior. Maintenance is just sustaining that change. Um, and then you've got relapse where we might go back, fully back to our old patterns of behavior. I always like to differentiate for a lot of the young people I work with between a lapse and a relapse and a lapse being like a little boop, like a little blip on the radar where, whoops, I accidentally, you know, say you've given up cigarettes and you were like, oh, I'll just have one. And so you just have one. And then you go, nah, I don't want to do that again. And then you go back to not having cigarettes. Whereas a full-blown relapse would be, you know, you you had a 50, um, what is it, 50 a day, you know, pack 50 a day habit. Um, you've quit and then you go straight back to 50 a day and you, you just go, oh, stuff it, I'm, you know, I'm screwed now and you just stay on that. And it doesn't mean you can't come back out of that. It's just a bit more tricky and you need support. Um, so to put that into context, I guess thinking of all of the people that we work with in the field as being in a part of that change cycle. Um, and I've worked with people in every part of that. Um, and I think the trickiest ones to work with are the pre-contemplation. So they're not aware they've got a problem and they don't have an intention of changing. The contemplation's a little bit easier because they're like, oh, I know I've got a problem, but I don't really want to do anything yet. And that's cool. Like I can work with that. I can at least provide some education and give you information about whatever that issue is. And then that's up to you to go to the next stage. But I think the pre-contemplation can be quite draining because they're not ready to change. So no amount of you meeting them halfway is going to get them there. Like they're, you know, like I said, they're going to meet you halfway, but they're back at the start line. And unfortunately, unless they come to the party, it's going to be pretty hard to then go through into the next phase. And look, it doesn't mean there's nothing you can do when you're in the pre-contemplation phase. Nothing you can do, can't do. Nothing you can't do, sorry. It just means it's more tricky and I would spend majority of the time just building a relationship and being like, hey, I I get it. You don't really want my help at the moment. That's totally cool. I really respect that. And if you do, you know where I am. You know, you've got my number or whatever for the clinic or wherever you're operating out of. Give me a call and book in when when you want to talk. And then that's then putting it back, you know, the balls back in their court. And I think further on from that, we got talking last night about referring clients on. And I think there will be clients that are in that pre-contemplation phase that you're like, oh, we're really not getting anywhere. And you might have to refer on. Because it could be a number of things. One, they really don't, they're not ready for change yet. Two, you're not a good fit for them and that's okay. Or three, it's a bit of a combination and there's probably others, but I just made those up. And um, (laughs) so I think if it's the first one and they're genuinely not ready to change, referring them on might not really 
change that. Pardon the yeah pun pun whatever. Anyway, my point being, some people are just not ready yet, and that's okay. And we can respect that, and we can have those conversations. We can be transparent. We can say, hey, I'm getting the sense like I'm here, but I'm I'm feeling you're not here. Like you're not vibing this whole situation, and. I feel like if I push you, if I like try and get you to talk, you actually go further back into your shell and I'm like, hello, come out, whatever you are. And they're just like, this lady's bloody crazy. Um, And then I might say, and I'm thinking that you might not actually be ready to talk to anyone at this stage and that's perfectly fine. Or it could be me and maybe you just need to meet someone else and it could be like a bit of a personality issue. And as I was saying that, I was aware that it's like, it's not me, it's you. (laughs) It's not you, it's me. That's not what I, (laughs) that's not what I meant to imply. Oh dear. Basically what I'm trying to say is that some people that come to therapy are not ready for therapy. And I would trust your gut on that. Like if you genuinely feel you are not helping that person It is in their best interest and your best interest to refer on or to have the conversation around, we might not book another appointment today or we won't book another appointment today. Sorry, I have trouble being like definitive. I'm like, oh, let's give people options. No, not. it's not ideal because if you leave scope for the options, it can become really wishy-washy and people get confused. So I think I would be just straight up and say, hey, look, I don't, okay, I just nearly did it again. Okay, (laughs) so we're not going to book any more appointments at this stage. Um, And what I would like you to do is have a think about it. And when you're ready, you can call up and book another appointment. And we can continue if you like. Um, And I'll, so you could do one of two things. I'll wait to hear from you. Or in a month's time, I'm going to give you a check-in call. And I'll see where you're at. If you've got a clear goal and things you want to talk about, I'll book you back in. If you don't, I'll leave it in your court and then it's up to you to contact me after that. And I feel like that's the best way. Like I've done this multiple times with clients. Generally what will happen is they might like just start to disengage really slowly. So they, you know, they're late to an appointment and then the next one they miss and then the next one they cancel and then they might just keep canceling or keep not showing up. And it's, it's evident that it's just not the right time and that's okay. It's not always going to be the right time. So just remember that for those of you that are starting out, some clients are not ready to change yet. Some are, but you're not the right person to help them change. Remember personalities sometimes clash or they just don't gel well and that's okay. Think of it like, I don't want to call a client a friend, but what I mean by this is every single person we meet, we don't gel with. Like we're not going to just walk down the street and every person we see, we're like, hi, how are you going? And then we're like best friends. And then we, you know, go on holidays together and have dinner parties. Probably not. Okay. It's unlikely. It'd be cool, wouldn't it? But it's unlikely. And I think thinking of connecting with a therapist in the same way not every therapist is going to be the best fit. 
and you're not so as a therapist you're not going to be the best fit for every client and that's perfectly fine it's just like how we get to a point in our lives we realize oh not everyone likes me and that's actually not in my control damn it (laughs) it's a hard realization to come to man far out anyway like i said um yeah, we have to come to that realization that not all clients will like us. I guess at the end of the day, it's not about being liked, but it certainly helps. And it certainly does help to build rapport. And I would generally say like session one is going to be clunky. It's going to be awkward. You're both probably a bit nervous. So probably give it till at least session two. And like, I'm talking the end of session two to call it, to say, Hey, like, I'm feeling as though we haven't made that connection. I feel like I would be doing you a disservice to continue. How about I refer you on to my colleague, Jane or John or (laughs) just using generic names here. But yeah, and seeing if that's a better fit or how about we won't book any more appointments today, but I'll give you a call in a month and check in and see how you're going. So just being flexible Not putting the onus on you to fix every single person that walks through your door because that is one, not your job, and two, impossible. Um, And yeah, I think, um, yeah, just being aware of where people are at. So we've touched on stages of change. Another thing that came up, and I'm aware I... Oh, sorry. Put my phone on. Another thing that came up and... um, Sorry, I've had a... A brain fart. <laughs> another thing, another thing that came up was um, the fact that we're having to alternate between two different hats in private practice. So you've got a business hat and a, you know, your empath hat, your psychology hat, like your caring, really, you know, unconditional positive regard hat on. And those two hats, like they don't fit on top of one another. And that's really challenging because there are times when, you know, you have to charge a client a cancellation fee and that is totally, it just doesn't feel empathic. I mean, at the end of the day, it is respecting people and having good boundaries, um, but it just doesn't feel like it at the time. And I think it's really important to be aware of that, that if you are in private practice, you are essentially a business person and you're also a therapist And I would just encourage you to have really firm boundaries and rules around your fees and around cancellations and to stick to those. Even if the little empath in you goes, oh, no, they can't afford it or, oh, no, oh, just let them off this one time. Like, look, there will be exceptions to that. I'm not a complete Nazi. Um, (laughs) but I think it's really important to acknowledge that, um, if you stick to that format, not only are you respecting yourself as a business person, as a therapist, you're also respecting the clients because it's teaching them real world that if they don't show up, these are the consequences. You don't want to kind of pussyfoot around them and give them that expectation that, nowhere charges a cancellation fee because then in the places that do it's going to be a rude shock and yeah I just don't think that's fair at the end of the day so I think 
just remember that when you are designing your policies and procedures and, you know, you're doing your consent and all that stuff, have these clear figures and rules in mind and then refer back to those when they come up um, rather than going into empath mode and being like, oh, no, I'll just let it slide this one time because you're going to let it slide the next time and the time after that. And, and, you know, three weeks down the track, you're $180 out of pocket because the client didn't pay the cancellation fee. And then the next week they don't show up again. And they've got an expectation that, you know, they didn't have to pay the fee the first three times. So why would they have to pay it on the fourth? It just gets complicated. And then because you've made that allowance for that person, you're going to be like, Oh, I'll make that allowance for such and such. And yeah, it'll just get out of hand. So as unempathic as it feels, it, it is respectful, it is fair, as long as it's documented, as long as it's informed consent, there is nothing wrong with having those policies and procedures. Um, yeah, it's totally cool. Um, oh, um... I might just touch on one more thing before I wrap up for today because I've no idea how long I've been going for. Hopefully I hit record. <laughs> yes, I did. Oh, thank goodness. Imagine that. <laughs> You'd be like, oh, no. Oh, dear. Um, oh, sorry. I just have to check the tennis. Oh, my goodness. Andy Murray, he's still playing. Sorry, Andy Murray's like my favorite tennis player. He's playing against number 13 in the world, live scores. Um both won two sets each on a fifth set. Oh, woo. come on, Andy. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah. So to finish off, just wanted to touch on notes, note taking in your early career as a psych um, and session prep. So true story. I had this folder, I kid you not. And I had a piece of paper for every client it was all de-identified. I think I had like their initial um, and maybe their age and that was it. And what I used to do is the day before I was due to be, I think it was Headspace at the time, I'd go through each one and I'd do a session plan. So like it obviously depend on presenting concern and like where we're up to in therapy, but I'd like to do a full plan and I'd have like, paperwork there so it might be like a thought record or whatever you name it I'd have all the paperwork there ready to go um, and I'd spend like hours on it oh my gosh I cringe just thinking about it I wasn't getting paid for this mind you this was in my own time um, and yeah it, it wasn't wasn't a good time let's be honest um, and I had a um I had a session with my supervisor around it and he was like, I think I showed him and he was like, whoa, like he was a bit shocked. He was like, man, that's, that's pretty intense. I'm like, yeah, you're telling me. And I just had a lot of anxiety when I first started again, completely normal. And, um, he asked me a question and he said, Lisa, what do you think would happen if you, just rocked up to work and instead of just like hyper fixating on being this perfect psychologist with your session plans and your extensive notes and you know what your idea is of a perfect psychologist you just 
you were just you. Like, you just turned up as you, just as Lisa. And I looked at him and I, I think I got a bit teary and I said, I'd probably do a better job. (laughs) And it was that realisation of realising that if I'm just myself, like I've come into this job because I'm a natural empath and I care about people and I was so fixated on being a psychologist, I was kind of losing the point, like, and I was like, oh, wow, I'd actually do a better job because I wouldn't be so, like, perfectionistic and being like, this is what a perfect psychologist would do. I'd just be like, this is what Lisa would do and Lisa would do this based on what she knows about psychology, you know. So that was a pretty cool moment. That was like, man, he could have just dropped the mic, like, yep, full drop the mic moment. And I actually stopped doing my session preps. I know, crazy. And I just went with whatever came up on the day in the session. And look, to be fair, even when I had the session plans there, I generally did that anyway because the clients would come in with a crisis, nothing to do with what I had prepared for the day. Can you imagine if they came in and they were like, I've just broken up with my boyfriend and I'm like, okay, let's fill out a thought record on your social anxiety. They'd be like, um, did you just hear what I said? And I'd be like, I know, but we, we have to stick to the plan. It's all in the plan. We have to stick to the agenda. And they'd probably be like, okay, bye. So, (laughs) um, I think it's a really important lesson. Um, and just knowing that you guys have done so much training and you will know what tools to bring out in your toolkit in the sessions. It'll come to you. I used to have this phobia of not knowing what to say and like I'd get really panicked. I'd be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have this moment in therapy where like they stop talking and I stop talking and we're just going to look at each other awkwardly and, and, and it's all just going to turn to shit. And, um, to this day, it's never actually happened. There's been plenty of awkward moments, don't get me wrong. But I've either always thought of something to say or through enough awkward silence, the client's thought of something to say. And I think it's about, you know, merging in those skills that you guys already know how to do and merging those strategies in to the sessions that are a lot more organic and authentic and raw and complex and untextbook, if that's even a word. Um, just, you know, going with the flow, seeing what comes up and just getting really good at detecting what you're actually doing in the room because I can guarantee you're doing a lot of good stuff. You're doing some powerful stuff. And if you can zoom out and the zooming out gets a lot easier over time if you can zoom out and see what you're doing you can frame that as your evidence-based therapy because it's like oh that's right I just challenged some thoughts there and I just validated and I just let this client cry for the last 20 minutes and I didn't interject and I just sat with them and I've helped them regulate their emotion and taught them I'm not going anywhere I'm just sitting here I'm, I'm right here with you and all of that is so much more powerful than worked through thought record number five and we did it like robots. Like 
obviously there's a time and place for that stuff and there will be sessions where you can really sink your teeth in and do stuff like that but not always so you just got to see what comes up and work with that um and i think furthermore um with your notes so when we first start practicing generally we write like a a you know a novel of of the session one it's going to take you a lot of time to do that and probably time you're not getting paid for two no one else is likely to read it unless obviously there's caveats to that you get subpoenaed um medicare audit you your supervisor wants to have a look but generally you're going to be the main one looking at the note again this depends on where you work some places have access to the notes so everyone can go in um and have a look obviously that's something you've got to be mindful of generally though nine times out of ten you're the only one that can see that note you're the only one that has access to it you're the only one that's going to reread it so make it concise simple put the things in it that are necessary leave out the fluff (laughs) the fluff or the floof as i like to call it put what's crucial what do you need to know for the next session what do you what would a court need to know if they looked at your notes what would anyone need to know if something happened to this client so i think really just like honing in on that and just being really really basic who was in the session usually it's you and the client sometimes there's another person another couple of people put that down how did the client present were they you know flat in affect were was their mood normal were they really bubbly and talkative were they really numbed out and really disengaged um how were they dressed how did they smell whatever you know comment on appearance generally with that and with engagement if it doesn't change you can say see previous and then you might add more engaged today or you know you can modify it but it's just a lot less work and then further on from that you might say like issues discussed and then you might say strategies or skills worked on or provided and a plan for the next session and that's it and you probably want maybe a couple of sentences in the issues you discussed a couple in there for your strategies and one or two little lines on what you're going to do next and that's it that's it okay we don't have time to write novels especially if we're back to back we just don't have the time so as long as whatever you've got in there is what is necessary from that session that is all that matters okay i would like to finish off by saying please look after yourselves lots of self-care please talk to like-minded colleagues that you get along with might be people you studied at uni with people you work with people you don't work with whatever Please have regular contact with other psychologists. That's essential because the relief you feel at talking to someone that just gets what you do is such a great, you know, um, sorry, I'm getting a bit, (laughs) getting goosebumps here, um, is such a protective factor against burnout. Have regular supervision. If you need more, ask generally most supervisors will find the time might not be a full hour 
But if it's just 15 minutes to just intervene on a crisis, they might have it. So ask. You don't know if you don't ask. Another thing, you could even see your own psychologist. There's nothing wrong with that. I've done it in the past. Um, I think I saw one not that long ago, like a couple of months ago maybe, and I just generally see them for like a maintenance appointment. But you learn so much as a psychologist, seeing a psychologist. You're sitting on the opposite side. It's invaluable. And I think with the nature of the work we do is pretty important. Um, Biggest thing though, just do what works for you, whether that's riding your bike, walking your dog, painting, drawing, journaling, playing um, squash, I don't know, whatever. Um, Just do you, boo. (laughs) And I think I'm going to end it there because it's dinner time and I get hangry and no one wants to see me hangry. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye. Take care. Like on the mic.